Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the coronavirus. I know you probably didn't didn't know that, didn't couldn't guess that, but uh, it's it's obviously being talked about everywhere. And um, and so um, I wasn't going to do a podcast this week because I'm very busy with some personal things. But I thought, you know what, the world is really weird right now, and uh, especially for the those who really like the podcast, I don't want to make it weirder by skipping a week. I mean, I usually put out a podcast every week, so we're going to at least have one thing that's normal this week, and that will be this podcast. So um, I'm going to be talking kind of fast, so if you usually listen at double speed, you may want to slow it down for the monologue. Uh, after the monologue, we're going to talk to Dr. Bob, as we affectionately call him, at Duke University Hospital, and uh, we don't reveal his, his name because, well, he's a fan of this podcast, and... <laughs> <laughs> that's an, that's enough of a reason, you know. Uh, people people in those uh, kind of communities uh, where where they have influence and uh, they have uh, let's just say uh, politically correct uh, constraints that they have to live under. They they probably don't want people to know that they listen to this. But Dr. Bob uh, is I'll, I'll let him talk more about what his expertise is, but uh, he's definitely qualified to talk about this pandemic. And so um, we're going to ask him some medical questions uh, mostly. And, um, and we're going to end with some some silver linings here. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about um, about about this whole thing. Just um, start off kind of bird's eye view here. Uh, I probably feel like a lot of you, like, um, and I just kind of mentioned it. The world just doesn't feel right this week. It just feels it, feel, it feels different in a bad way. Um, we're you know used to going to church. We're not going to church. Church looked different if we did. Um, we you know, go to the store, we can't find milk or eggs or toilet paper. It's crowded. Um, we, you know, we, we go out in public and no one's dying on the street. There's no emergency that we can see around us, generally speaking. But at the same time, um, things feel empty. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it, it's it, having a change happen that quickly from the normal habits of our life. It can, I mean, we're sitting at home now, a lot of us. And uh, we have time now. Uh, I don't. I have no time. This is probably the busiest week of my life. It's hard to, for me to even get this out there, but but um, but many of us do, and, and I probably will soon. And and so we sit at home, and you know, what do we do? Are we watching TV? Are we on the internet? Are we reading? What you know? We're we're we have time now to to look at things we probably didn't before. And there and I, I encourage you, number one, to to look for the blessing in that, especially if you get to spend time with your family, if you get to. Um, get to projects that you just haven't gotten to if there's a theological question you had now you can study it i mean there's some blessings to this but at the same time we can't shake probably the feeling of this is just weird so um i i wanted to i wanted to to bring to your attention a few things and um i'm gonna i'm gonna share with you some some links so some some things that I, i've uncovered on the world economic uh, forum and um, and kind of just the, the general flow of where I think this whole thing is going uh, as far as um, more globalization, more um, consolidation. Uh, I, I think that um, there are forces that whether they're behind uh, some of the regulations that are, are, are taking place uh, or whether um, they want to benefit from the panic and, and some of the regulations that are being put in place by governments, um, there, there certainly are people with an agenda right now, and um, and I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I need to let you know that. Uh, here's my modus operandi: when someone comes to me with a conspiracy theory, uh, especially one that's like you know the Bilderbergs or the, the Masons are controlling everything or something, I, I usually say, "What do you want me to do about it?" Like even if that's true, which 
I don't think it is, but what, what can I do? Um, well, you just need to be aware. I'm like, I understand being informed, but, um, but here's the thing. I mean, this is what I usually say. I believe there's a greater conspiracy that is, you know, way beyond what you're talking about, a spiritual conspiracy. We get a glimpse of it in the book of Daniel, the demons, Satan himself is influencing world governments. Uh, he's against the forces of good of God. He, um, he, he controls some of the, the evil forces that you're probably thinking are, you know, man-made or in some weird cases, people say reptilian or alien or whatever. No, no, no. Look, you're talking small stuff. It's way beyond that. All that to say, though, um, if you have Jesus Christ, if you are in him, if you uh, are a Christian, you have access uh, to the king of the universe who controls, who is over those entities, and you can have comfort in that. If you don't have him, then, well, I, I guess I'd be afraid too, but there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so I can at least pray uh, with knowledge. Um, but other than that, um, what's the practical reason that you, you know, for knowing things that are so big and global and outside of your control? Well, not much. Um, so there's, there's a few things I want to share with you, but I, I want to make it clear what my intention is. I, I want to share some of these, these, this trend, if you want to call it that, uh, towards globalization and consolidation. I want to share it with you um, because I just want you to be thinking, number one, about uh, questions that are going to be arising about your own uh, investments, how you raise your kids for this world uh, that we are embarking on uh, in that we're living in and, and um, the world that's also just around the corner. Um, and um, I, I want to get behind, I think, what's enabling this because there's a fear that I think is driving people to be more, um, I mean, it's what I saw when I went to the store and there's no toilet paper, right? It, there's a fear, there, there's a, a willingness to trade in liberty for security. And I think th there's a sense of personal responsibility uh, itself that is as lost. Um, I, I noticed that uh, local municipalities in many places were cracking down on uh, social gatherings much more than the national or state governments were um, initially. And then state governments were, were more restrictive than the national government. And now, of course, they're all being restrictive. But there, there was a sense I got that there was a fear. Um, maybe there was a moral posturing. And I mean, some of these guys genuinely probably care about their citizens, but there's, there's also, I just sense a fear that they don't want to be blamed for not taking the proper precautions and someone dying on their watch. And so they're going to take extreme actions. If it means completely crashing their economy, their local economy, completely destroying their tax base, um, which really, I mean, you need that in order to fight this. <laughs> You need resources, right? Resources don't come out of thin air. Governments don't produce money. We all need to remember that. Uh, it comes from people. It comes from productivity. And so if, if people are not going to be productive, if you're limiting that, um, you need to be very careful. Some cures are worse than their diseases. And, um, and this is one of the things I'm watching is I'm not saying that it's, you know, we should take precautions, but but I, I, I can't escape the feeling that we're, we're going overkill here on some things. And um, I think there's an assumption that these leaders, civic leaders, are responsible somehow, and they do bear responsibility before God for implementing justice. But um, but we have personal responsibility. That's really one of the defining things about Americans, or it was, was that we believe in self-government. We believe that um, government should leave us alone, and, and we should make responsible decisions. Now, people are less and less so making those decisions uh, responsibly, but... Um, that, that is our heritage. And, uh, you know, normally I, I would think, and you'll hear me say this uh, kind of later uh, to Dr. Bob, but um, 
you know, in, in a situation like this, there's a risk. There's always a risk to going outside, right? You can get in a car accident. You can, I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen that could go wrong. Um, but um, in, in this specific situation, I, I, I'm more of a believer in local municipalities, um, uh, local organizations, local businesses, local families, uh, organically making decisions about what's best for them. And um, hopefully a good media providing information about how to make that best decision. Um, I don't like the top-down stuff. I'm just giving you, this is just my gut feeling right now I'm giving you. I, I don't like it, and in some cases I think it, it's um, overstepping boundaries. And, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit in regards to the church. Um, but all that to say, um, I think we need to get out of the mindset that government or civic leaders uh, of any kind are somehow responsible. You know, if, you're, if your pastor holds church and you go to church and you get the coronavirus, you know, um, ultimately, I mean, the decision to go to the church was your decision, right? The decision to go out to the grocery store is your decision. And in, in with we hear this, you know, about the coronavirus every five seconds. So you're, there's an awareness there already. And, uh, and so I just think personal responsibility needs to be regained somehow because I think we've, we've lost it. We, we cry out to our gods, and our god right now is the government, it seems like. Um, you know, that's, that's the god we pray to. Uh, it really is our father who art in Washington at this point. Every time a hurricane blows through, every time a pandemic happens, it's what's the government going to do. And, um, you know, I, I'm on a tangent at this point, but... <laughs> I was glad Donald Trump uh, did a National Day of Prayer, and we probably need to have another one. But in addition to prayer, humiliation and repentance um, would be nice. I mean, look, the possibility that this is the judgment of God, I mean, why not? Why, why can't it be that? Um, we certainly deserve it, don't we? Uh, so I want, to, um, I want to go through uh, some things here, uh, just, just uh, if I can. Let's see here. If it's, oh, there we go. Uh, here we, I, I want to talk a little bit about some things I've noticed. Um, some of them you might find interesting, uh, but there's a general narrative I'm going to be weaving. I think there was some anticipation for this. Um, if you go to the CDC website back, back in uh, November, on November 15th, public health advisors for the quarantine program were being hired all over. Um, Alaska, California, uh, Chicago, Illinois, Detroit, Michigan, Minnesota, I mean, all over, you just read this, all sorts of places. And, and it's just, it's very interesting to me, um, that, that this was taking place back then. And, and I, you know, I, I haven't compared all the dates, but, um, if I'm not mistaken, that's right when, that's like immediately when, uh, things were happening in Wuhan in China. Um, it, it almost feels like that was before, but, but either way, um, there was, there was some kind of a, whether either someone was way ahead of the game and they knew that this was coming and, or they, they assumed this could happen or someone it had already started to take place and someone was just seeing the potential for what could happen. But either way, <laughs> there was some anticipation, but despite the anticipation, despite hiring people for this quarantine program, um, back in November, um, there, there was some unpreparedness because the Center for Disease Control, why, you know, look here, here they're hiring in, in November and, um, and this is a, this is an interesting article by the way. Um, and, uh, you know what? I don't think I put the website I found this on. Uh, most of them I have the website and I can't remember what website this was. Um, this is, uh, the, the headline is the CDC was fighting racism and obesity instead of stopping epidemics. And I'm not going to read all this for you, but essentially 
the CDC for years now has, has experienced a complete mission drift. Um, instead of st studying like outbreaks and where they formed and how to fight them and so forth, uh, they were focusing on disparities and trying to make sure that, you know, um, researching um, these grandiose proposals for the federal government where they could eliminate uh, inequity on certain things um, or eliminate obesity, studying, you know, uh, what causes obesity and, and how to uh, implement programs to fight it. I'll tell you what causes obesity. All right. It's, it's taking in too many calories and not burning enough. <laughs> One of those two things are both a combination. I mean, um, a lot of this stuff isn't rocket science, but you know, the CDC is what was focused on these things. And so they were unprepared for uh, what's taking place. Uh, there's also, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of examples of this, but there's also government incompetence. This is uh, something I saw the other day uh, from Canada. Um, passengers were allowed to return home uh, from Europe uh, without being tested. And uh, <laughs> they were given a pamphlet, but they were not tested. And so just, just some basic common sense things um, weren't followed. And of course, uh, restrictions have been imposed now. And this is, you know, a few days ago, uh, I put, maybe this was yesterday, I don't even remember. Time is just weird right now with how fast things are happening. But uh, when Cuomo had, um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, said that we're, you know, we're going to shut down uh, restaurants, gyms, and bars, um, by 8 p.m., I thought, this is crazy. How can someone do that? And now, of course, we're seeing this everywhere and more severe restrictions than that. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we get the most clear, best guidance to give people. So, Judge? Okay, with respect to bars and restaurants, um, there's a couple of different issues there. I do not believe I have the legal authority to do that. Section 418 of the government code gives me powers under disaster, which I do have. If I read those the way that I read them, I can apply uniform hours to businesses. I can't pick and choose. But let's get past Section 418 of the government code right now and talk about the U.S. Constitution, which forbids me from depriving you of liberty or property without due process. So I think if we got past Section 418, I'd still have a constitutional problem. Uh, as the doctor mentioned, cities might have some different tools to work with. I don't have them. I don't believe I have any authority to close bars and restaurants. And so... I'm, I'm my head spinning. It's, it's almost like too fast to digest what's actually taking place, but that is taking place all over. Uh, and of course the economic ramifications, I can't even imagine. Um, this was an interesting thing. This is actually from back in February, but this is what was happening in China. And I, you know, I don't know if it'll happen here or not, but the government was literally taking physical currency um, to be quarantined because <laughs> it may have the virus on it. And who knows what else they were doing in regards to the money supply, uh, I don't know. But that was, um, I mean, this is the extent to which this kind of thing can go. Um, <clears throat> then we have, we had a run on a bank uh, in Midtown. Uh, they were cleaned out of $100 bills. Uh, and of course, the stock market is, is has been steadily going down. Um, and so I think people are starting, people are panicking in different sectors. Um, and, and now it's not so much the coronavirus uh, that's making people panic. It's now the response to the coronavirus. Because of these responses, people are panicking further. And so uh, you, you have things like in Denmark, um, the parliament ruled on Thursday, uh, last Thursday, unanimously. They passed an emergency coronavirus law, which gives health authorities powers to force testing 
treatment and quarantine with the backing of the police. So, you know, imagine that happening here. You know, that that would be incredible. Um, and then here's another one, bars, restaurants closing in Illinois, etc. Uh, and, um, and, so, and so here, I'm going to start showing you some things I found on the uh, World Economic Forum website. Because so these, just so you know, this is more, these are the kind of global elites, globalist or friendly organizations, publications. And, and, and so if you want to know kind of like where um, globalist thinkers want to take things, uh, this is, would be where you go. And so uh, Trump's trade policy. Not good. Hampering the U.S. fight against coronavirus from the Peterson Institute of International Economics. And, uh, you know, they're arguing that medical supplies from China, um, we, we could have easily been more prepared and had more of those supplies uh, if Donald Trump hadn't um, started his trade war. And, of course, those restrictions have been lifted at this point. Um, but um, there, you're going to see a trend as I show you the rest of these articles. There's a theme here. Um, in uh, the New Yorker, uh, and, of course, and I found this again through the World Economic Forum, they were linking to it, the coronavirus calls for wartime economic thinking. Here's a, sent here, here's a paragraph. The world is de facto at war against the virus rather than against each other. This is the good news. Oliver Blanchard, the former chief econ economist at the International Monetary Fund, tweeted on Monday. He went on to point out that during the Second World War, the federal deficit as a percentage of the GDP rose to 26%. As the Roosevelt administration spent heavily on armaments and other programs, let's not be squeamish," Blanchard added. So, what what they're essentially saying is, treat this like you're in war, like a physical war, and don't be afraid to go into debt. And and so, yes, yeah, yeah, run up the spending bill right now because we're at war. Um, there's uh, proposals now for universal basic income. I mean, that's been there before, but. Um, more than that, actually, in this article, and I didn't uh, pull up the quote, but even Mitt Romney was uh, saying we, we should, because of this emergency, this coronavirus emergency, uh, we should, um, it was, a, I think it was like a thousand bucks or something we should give to every American. It was, it was something like that, or every family. But he, he wanted to give this across the board kind of um, monetary, uh, from the government, monetary um, uh I guess, gift, for lack of a better term. In fact, it's not a gift, though, when it's your money, but they wanted it's, it's redistribution if it's not your money. Um, and he wanted to do this because of, I guess, the, 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 missed, the, the to help people out, the missed work, uh, business problems, so forth and so on. Uh, Donald Trump is, of course, bailing out airlines and it looks like possibly cruise ships. $50 billion, hand, $50 billion handout. Uh, from the government to help through the current downturn in travel. Um, I mean, this is amazing. Do you think any of this could have happened without the precedent that uh, George Bush put in place, really? And then Barack Obama continued and made worse uh, during the 2008 uh, economic downturn. I mean, this is incredible that it, it's just, it's not even a thought. It's just, of course, the government's going to help these industries, um, which, again, that's your money. That's not, the government doesn't have money. It's your money. You, you're paying American Airlines. Um, uh, of course, more global control here. Uh, here's, here's some articles. Center for Global Development. Coronavirus response. Time to take the G20 seriously again. Um, World Economic Forum. How the coronavirus market turmoil compares to 2008. 
third, and here's one of the points they make. The global business community needs to come together to help lead the recovery. The World Economic Forum's COVID action platform aims to galvanize both governments and business leaders to do just that. And what's the COVID action platform? Galvanize the global business community for collective action. Protect people's livelihoods and facilitate business continuity. Mobilize cooperation and business support for the COVID-19 response. It's all about coming together. That's going to be the theme you're going to be hearing. It's, it's going to be, um, you know, private businesses and corporations and governments and everyone just consolidating uh, to form some something. Um, a global stimulus has been proposed uh, by the IMF blog. This is, again, I found this through International Monetary Fund. I found this through uh, World Economic Forum. They link to it. Um, and so they think there should be a global stimulus. Um, that's, that is a frightening prospect in my mind. Um, it, <laughs> because, we're, I mean, a national stimulus is frightening enough. A global stimulus? Uh, where's all this going to come from? Well, again, there's a consolidation happening. And so if there's consolidation of all these, these, these various um, uh, corporations and governments and so forth, they can, they can create... They can have a fund or, or you know something that can bail out you know countries that are having problems, and we can eliminate disparities. Um, the only problem is if you create something that big, the amount of control it would have. Um, there might be some potential for good, maybe. I'm willing to give a very big benefit of the doubt, sort of, <laughs> but the potential for evil. Uh, is even worse if you start creating things uh, of that proportion. I mean. What other problems can we uh, can we tackle? Well, I'm glad you asked. We can tackle immigration. Uh, the crisis, the international crisis group, put this out: sharing the burden, revisiting the EU Turkey migration deal. Um, and the point of this is, um, I'm going to just read: as the European Union and Turkish officials revisit the 2016 deal in the coming weeks, the two sides should explore options for modernizing the customs union and fostering the integration of refugees in Turkey. They should also assess the prospect of offering substantially more humanitarian aid and other assistance to civilians in Idlib. Uh, worries over the spread of the coronavirus among these vulnerable populations who may soon be on the move is all the more reason to take measures to address their desperate conditions. Pr progress in these areas is more realistic than efforts to unstick complex talks on visa liberalization or acts ascension um, that are conditioned on Turkey meeting a long list of criteria, etc. Uh, so this is is trying to, in some ways, is pulling the heartstrings, but, um, you know, we need to up our humanitarian aid. Um, we need we need to help these people, which, of course, I mean, that, that's always good intentions, uh, you know, can, can lead to some, sometimes some boneheaded moves. And uh, that's, so far, that's happened in Europe. I mean, that's one of the reasons Brexit happened, because uh, immigration, uh, the, the unrestricted, more <laughs> um, just, immigration pouring in from these countries uh, has not been good culturally for them. And it's, uh, it's changed uh, many European countries. And so um, now that there's a crisis, it, it's kind of like, well, let's up more compassion, you know, more, more resources, more money being poured into helping these people and bringing them in. And, and, um, and I don't have a long time. I don't have any time really to get into a big discussion of this, but um, we want to help people, especially as Christians. We want to help people, but there, what's the mechanism we sh ought to be using to do that? And um, and, and how is, how do we help um, 
people out of a hole, when they're in a predicament, when they're in a predicament that is generational, that every generation uh, lives in the same kind of grinding poverty or the same kind of tyranny, um, you know, maybe leading by example, maybe sending missionaries and maybe, um, maybe there's other ways to address these things and actually help people more long-term, kind of the principle of teaching a man to fish instead of giving them one uh, might be better than importing some of those problems. And I'm not saying the people are problems. I'm saying um, importing the, the problems, the ideas that some of these people will bring into your country. So um, more immigration. Um, how about climate change? Uh, I mean, phew, you, you thought that coronavirus was, was just about a virus. No, coronavirus and climate change. There is much uncertainty and much to play for. Uh, the Grantham Institute, and again, through the World Economic Forum, I found this. Here's one of the paragraphs. First and most strikingly, experts are back on the agenda and their place in informing public policy has been restored to some degree. In contrast, to low point of Michael Go, uh, Go I'm not sure, it was earlier in the article, Michael Gove's comments during the Brexit campaign. Oh, that, that, okay, so this is, they're, 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 <laughs> so here, let me explain this. What this article is saying is that during Brexit, uh, this was a populist uprising, and they weren't trusting the experts. That was a horrible thing, but they didn't trust the experts. And uh, Michael Gove being one of these people. Um, and uh, listening to experts is now widely recommended. There are few, if any, coronavirus deniers. And we are, for the most part, turning to uh, epit <laughs> I can't pronounce this. Epidemiologists, I think I got it, to inform public policy. Um, th those who would deal in epidemics, those guys. This is welcome and hopefully a lesson that will be retained for climate change. So, so what's the moral of coronavirus? Hey, we're, they're finally trusting the experts again. The people are looking towards the elites. Oh, they're listening to us. Maybe they'll listen to us now when we talk about climate change. <laughs> that's the, that, that's uh, the takeaway from this. Um, and, and here's another article. This is from Green Biz, again, World Economic Forum linked. Um, COVID-19 and the climate change, a healthy dose of reality. We'd better get started figuring this out. We have a window, a painfully clear window on what's coming next, a window of opportunity to align our organizations, value, listen to that, align our organizations. Everyone get into lockstep. Value chains and systems of commerce with this strange new normal. As I said, COVID-19 could be a taste of our collective future. So this is, that paragraph scares me. It just, and not, not in a way that I'm like shaking to my boots. I'm a Christian. I don't do that. Um, but, but as far as like just knowing this person is a utopian, a utopianist dreamer. Um, they, and, and, and they, what they want is for everyone just to come together and learn and do it now, do it now under the present circumstances, but keep this coalition so that we can fight the next thing, which is climate change, which is, I mean, this video isn't about this, but this myth that there's this man-made global warming that's just gonna flood everything and, and ruin everything. We're gonna use what's happening with coronavirus to now, um, to, to now uh, deal with an even bigger threat. I mean, it's about control, guys. It's about control. Um, think of yourself now as a global citizen from the London School of Economics and Political Science. These occurrences, coronavirus, show how profoundly the virus has cut into the relationship between citizen and uh, as a guarantee of the state's responsibility for the well-being of its citizens on the one hand and human rights and practices of solidarity on the other. So which one are you going to choose, guys? Which are you going to choose? Are you going to choose um, you know, being a citizen 
Uh, are you going to choose uh, something, I mean, so much more nice, uh, you know, human rights uh, and, and solidarity? Well, I mean, I don't know, human rights and solidarity, that sounds a lot nicer than being a citizen. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of what that article was about. Here's one from the World Economic Forum on education. Three ways the coronavirus pandemic could reshape education. Um, so, so here's a few things. Public-private educational partnerships could grow in importance. Uh, similar to Hong Kong-based readtogether.hk forum, uh, China, and they have a video of it. Um, there's a, uh, a consortium of over 60 educational organizers, publishers, media, and entertainment industry professionals. So read elites when you hear that. Uh, providing more than 900 educational assets, including videos, book chapters, assessment tools, and counseling services for free. For free. Of course, nothing's for free. So there's got to be strings attached, guys. Got to be strings attached. The uh, consortium's intention is to continue using the maintaining and maintaining the platform even after the coronavirus has been contained. Unless access costs decrease and quality of access increase in all countries, the gap in education quality and the socioeconomic quality will be further exacerbating. So you don't want a disparity. You don't want some people, you know, haves and have nots. We need to come together. We need to make sure everyone has the same access, the same technology, the same tools. Uh, we need to offer it for free. Uh, here's another one on education uh, from Pew Research Center. As schools close due to the coronavirus, some U.S. students face a digital homework gap. Oh, the homework gap. And it's worse, of course, for, uh, for black teens than it is for whites um, because 11% of them don't have computers. Uh, it's comparing income levels. and all. So we're going to have to, we need, we need equity. We need um, equity uh, in order to do this. And how are we going to do that? Well, it's, it's the tools I just described for you. Everyone's going to come together. We're going to offer services for free. And uh, we're going to close this gap. So let me tell you what's going on. You remember in World War II, if you well, if you're old enough, maybe you remember, or you studied about it. Uh, the whole world came together. Uh, the Allied powers came together, and um, I mean, first there was economic cooperation, like Lend-Lease, but then you know it was it was consolidation. It was Allied forces. I mean, we um, you know from World War One we had the League of Nations. From World War II, uh, you know, more of an involvement uh, in global efforts from the United Nations and um, and you had NATO during the Cold War. And so you have these, you know, in reaction to actual war, there's or the, the potential threat of war, uh, there's a coming together. And of course, on an individual level, that happened. I mean, women were in the workforce. People were tightening their belts, having victory gardens uh, and um, recycling tires and so forth during World War II because everyone was motivated for the war effort. And liberals, um, uh, you know, <laughs> They want that kind of cooperation, that kind of consolidation. You can control something like that. You can think of all the good you can do <clears throat> if everyone's on the same page, pursuing the same kind of goal. The problem is war stinks. <laughs> and <clears throat> something like this, something like this pandemic, which also stinks, but isn't quite as bad as war, um, this brings people together because people are afraid if they can sacrifice, they'll sacrifice. Um, especially when you know that it's someone that you love that could die from it or you yourself, you, you're willing to come together to find a solution. And, and so that's kind of what they're tapping into, that, that uh, you know, willingness to work together on this commonly um, valued project. And again, the, the issue um, 
well, from a biblical standpoint, there's a bunch of issues with this. This is the Tower of Babel tendency. This is when you when you do this on a global level and you're talking about every level of government, you're talking about businesses and corporations and then just all consolidating. Um, that can be used for tremendous evil. And there's a reason God didn't want that. Um, however, um, you know, that being said, uh, just 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 a common sense kind of way of approaching this. Uh, even if you can do tremendous good, if you start creating um, the kind of entity or entities that have the backing of armies or private armies, or um, you know, there's force that can implement some of the things they have, or they, you know, they, you know, they're going to control your education for free, but there's strings attached with it. They can indoctrinate your kids. Um, there's potential for a lot of harm. And, and we need to be aware of that. This is the direction things seem to be going. Now, not all this stuff has happened, but they, they, they're, they're dreaming right now. This is the, I mean, these are utopianists. When they see this, they think, oh goodness, how can we use this crisis to show people the truth of what we've been saying? Just follow us. We're the elites. We, we can centrally plan everything. We can, we can um, you know, control everything from education to medicine uh, to, you know, now, I guess, with the, the global warming stuff, it, regulating the economies in such a way that it'll impact the environment. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, what, what happens to national allegiances? What happens? I mean, th there's a lot of concerns that we could talk about in regards to this. Um, uh, but, but I should say, before I, I you know, there's, there's, there's silver linings. I said I would bring those up. Uh, don't be too worried. This, not all of this has happened. I'm just pointing out that there are people who want this to happen. And the solution, again, is to go back to personal responsibility and to say, look, um, in the United States of America, we've been through a lot. We've you know, been through the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and all sorts of pandemics before Spanish flu. And, and um, we, we can hang tough together in our country. Uh, in our local community. That's really what love your neighbor. I mean, it, it really does start. It's your neighbor. It's the Good Samaritan was so someone right there on the side of the road that they saw. That That's who that was. Uh, the, the love one another passages generally, like First John, love your brother. It's your brother. It's, it's your Christian brother. Um, those who don't provide for their family, worse than an infidel. It's, there's a proximity. There's a principle in scripture. There's um, those who are the closest to you, you have the most responsibility for. And that's where really I think our efforts should be going. Uh, primarily it's it's to those who are closest to us and and this this consolidation kind of uh, tendency that we're seeing in places like the world economic forum is it, it's not your neighbor across the street i mean they want you to care for them right but just as much as you would for someone who's in india or in russia or you you know wherever uh, you, you're, you're going to come together and create this organization, which frankly, um, organizations, when they get that big, it's impersonal at that point. It really is. Um, and, and they don't get their money out of a vacuum. So there's always strings attached. So I just wanted to point that out and no, I'm not saying that it's just, it's a big globalist conspiracy and spooky music. I'm saying this is what actual, you know, links from elite institutions the World Economic is linking to. These, these are what those people are saying. This is what they want. So be aware of it, uh, that we're, we're moving in that direction. Um, and, uh, and don't fear, don't fear. Don't, don't go buy a you know, toilet paper. You, show that you don't need those guys <laughs> as much. Uh, as Americans, as in my case, I live in Virginia, as Virginians uh, or wherever state you're from in your local community, like we'll hang tough together. We'll get through things together. 
you know, love your neighbor and, and devote your time uh, to those things and show that, you know, we, we can, I, you know, I'm hoping one of the silver linings here in regards to education, I'll just say this, is homeschooling. I hope people realize when their kids home from, come home from school and maybe they have some online work they have to do, the parents start thinking, wait a minute, we could do this. We don't need the government schools anymore. That would be nice. I mean, there, there's actually potential here for, me, for even more nationalism. I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't think most elites want that to happen. But look, the potential is that you could, people could start thinking, you know what? You know, this, this virus came from another country. We should have shut down travel sooner, maybe. We should, uh, you know, maybe we should make more medical things in our country and not be dependent on China for those things. You know, maybe there will be more of a nationalism. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, so here's uh, some other things I just wanted to point out. Um, individual liberties there's some are, are being um, people are getting nervous people who care about that kind of thing uh, we have a coronavirus patient refused quarantine so deputies are surrounding his house to force him to um, which to be honest with you in, in some ways I can kind of understand I don't know the details to what extent he was refusing to be quarantined you know maybe he wanted to be in his own house quarantined uh, you know that you'd think that would be okay um but I, I i the concern i have is that this becomes more widespread and we enter a phase where um you know there's there's you know i i it, again you can hear even the struggle in my own voice because there are people out there who just don't take precautions you know you, you every time you, you see one of those discovery channel things on like a volcano explosion or a tornado or hurricane there's always those people who are like i've lived here my whole life i'm not leaving and those are the guys that you think, well, someone should probably <laughs> should keep them from harming others. And, and that is a role that government has. And so, um, you know, if it's the local government, uh, I don't have as much of a problem with that. Um, but uh, but again, th this is authority that can be abused. Uh, Harris County Judge uh, Linda Hildalgo, this was on Twitter, I guess, earlier today. Today, our new regulations on bars and restaurants. So basically, um, they must not operate, <laughs> except in delivery, takeout, drive-through. And then to report violations, call our hotline. And so people were upset that, you know, what, you're just trying to get people to call, you know, on businesses who are remaining open. And it's like, yeah, you know, this isn't, I, I don't recognize this either. This isn't the country I thought I lived in to where you just lead with that, you know, uh, let, let's all kind of police each other. Uh, that, that means there's, there's sort of a civic mistrust in that area. And, and you, you want to build trust in an environment like this. But at the same time, you want to be concerned for safety. So again, um, if we can self-regulate, if we can have self-government, and we don't, we don't need those things. And, and that would be my hope is we can return to that, a basic trust um, in each other. But just pointing out that that's happening. Um, we have here... Uh, social media smartphone tracking so um, in israel uh, and iran and china they are tracking citizen smartphones uh, to build a database let's see here um, they're using that intel so, so basically here, here's how that that would work uh, if you track where someone is and you find out oh someone had coronavirus there then you can look at all the other people who are in that area and you can test them so you can keep virus from spreading um, and of course though the downside is the government now has, they can track you. And we're setting precedents for this being a normal thing, normalization of it. Uh, we have uh, the Washington Post, U.S. government tech industry discussing ways to use smartphone location data to combat coronavirus. So, of course, now the U.S. is looking at this, potentially. So Zuckerberg um, admitting that 
Uh, yes, there is. I guess I'll just read it. We are working closely together on COVID-19 response efforts. So with the government, we're helping millions of people stay connected while also jointly combating fraud and misinformation about the virus, elevating authoritative content on our platforms and sharing critical updates in coordination with government healthcare agencies around the world. We invite other companies to join us as we work to keep our communities healthy and safe. So they're working with the government. And here is an article. Uh, this is, uh, this was actually, <laughs> people who were posting this, uh, it was going against community standards. I don't know if that's still the case, but uh, this is from Business Insider and um, Google, Facebook, and other tech companies are reportedly uh, report in talks with the government to use your location data to stop the spread of the virus. The data could also shine light on whether people are adhering to government-ordered containment measures like social distancing as the number of coronavirus cases surpasses 5,000. Uh, Trump issued guidance recommending that people avoid gathering in groups. So, so here's here's what that would mean if you, you're taking a picture with your friends at a party and you, you know, have coronavirus or when we're at a place where there's coronavirus or something. You know, they could notify the government uh, you, using that platform. Um, crazy stuff, guys. You think that's an infringement of privacy? Well, I mean, look, Facebook is a private company. You're probably uh, I, I'm encourage you like my stuff on Facebook, but just be aware that. Um, that stuff could go straight to the government uh, if Facebook just wants to make that available. It's very easy. So, uh, and then here's the evangelical reaction. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm going to say a little bit about this, but um, kind of winding down my monologue before we get to Dr. Bob here. Uh, look at the word that is on the front of this website, trusted resources for churches from leading experts. Trusted experts trusted experts it almost sounds like a political campaign it almost sounds like they're they got something to prove um it's not just yeah, here's some helpful things they want you to know that these are from trusted experts and i just to me it just it feels weird it, it felt odd when i was reading it i'm like trusted i like i would just you know here's some good information you know this will help your church why does it have to be, why, why is it a pull to get you to look at these people and platform them in your mind? Like they're the experts. I mean, you know, did, did John MacArthur get a call? Did, I mean, who, who, who's the expert? Because I know, you know, Rick Warren's not a doctor. He's the one on the front of this. So what makes him a trusted expert? The fact that it says that, um, kind of weird, kind of weird. Uh, but they, they obviously, this is an elitist thing. Obviously, like, it, I mean, I keep using that word, I guess. And elitist doesn't have to be a bad word, but, um, but, but there is a sense of superiority here. Like these are the guys, these are the leaders. And in, it's not, you know, the, these aren't the, um, uh, the leaders scripture talks about. These aren't, you know, prophets, apostles, pastors, Right, I don't think we have apostles now uh, in that sense, anyway. But it's not—it's not an ecclesiastical role, is my point. Uh, that's biblically warranted. This is this is a secular kind of category, trusted experts. And you know they're gonna they're gonna tell you uh, what to do. Now, what are the things they're telling you? Well, they, they have a book out, preparing your church for coronavirus, and a PDF, which was like really quick that they had a book out. This was a couple of days ago. I saw it, and I'm like, man, that was quick. Um, probably just had information and slapped that label on it. Uh, but here's the, here's some of the things that in the, here's one of the things that says in the PDF, people of Asian descent have faced stigmatization and discrimination because of COVID-19 outbreak has its origin in China. 
your church has an important role to promoting faithful preparedness and also in reducing fearful panic and prejudice. If you can find me one incident, I mean, look, I've been eating more Chinese food in the last month than I've ever eaten. And I think it's because every time I turn on anything or I walk in a room and, you know, Planet Fitness or something and the media is on, it's talking about, it was talking about Wuhan for so long. And I'm always like, man, I could really use some sweet and sour chicken right now. I think it was like, it worked the opposite with me. Um, but but there's this idea, and I haven't seen one example of it, that there, there's racism against Chinese because of this. Why are evangelicals, the trusted ones, repeating this stupid um, farce that people of Asian descent have faced stigmatization and discrimination? And this made, it, made its way into a preparing your church for coronavirus book. Really, how does that help you in preparing for coronavirus to know that? Um, <clears throat> means your church is going to be really thinking about racism, I guess. And, and this is somehow, I don't know. Um, Ed Stetzer. Uh, who Ed Stetzer? If there's any guy who's oh, here we go, who's woke, uh, you know Ed Stetzer would would pretty much fit that bill. Uh, he is, uh, I believe, he's the head, if I'm not mistaken, of the Billy Graham Center at uh, Wheaton College. And um, <clears throat> oh my, he um, there's a lot we could say about Ed Stetzer. But here's what he says uh, for this uh, in this context: Leverage ways your church is already speaking out on behalf of the marginalized and vulnerable. Ensure the fair distribution of resources so that these groups don't fall through the cracks amidst the public health crisis at hand. It's just a weird way to phrase it. It's not, this isn't biblical language. Um, <clears throat> yeah, help the orphans and the widows, right? Um, marginalized, marginalized means there's an action being taken against them. Marginalized, I mean, this is used frequently in the social justice circles. I'm not saying there's no one who's marginalized, but this is this is overused word. And how about just making sure everyone has help? Help your people. Don't show partiality. Um, but, but leverage the ways your church is already speaking out on behalf of marginalized and vulnerable, fair distribution of resources. Um, <clears throat> I mean, he's worried that even that they won't do this, that this isn't the way the church is for some reason. The church, um, it must be leveraged in order to do this. Uh, it's just, I'm just pointing out the language. It sounds an awful lot like the social justice language we get in you know, liberal circles in the world. Uh, Derwin Gray here, we fight with faith, hope, and love, sadly. Uh, there have been incidents where Asians have been the target of racism and prejudice because of COVID-19. Teach your people to treat everyone as though Jesus died for them because he did. We are to love our Asian sisters and brothers in this time of anguish. That uh, it makes me makes me so mad. It just it just it just rubs me the wrong way. That uh, this lie, this 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 lie, this farce that. Because of coronavirus, Asians are being marginalized or treated in these unfair ways. And you, you see three instances in this website, you know, links on this website and so forth to at least uh, to, to that. That's the issue. Your church needs to be more equitable and, and so forth. It's like that, this, this is part of fighting the coronavirus, apparently. Um, but they are the trusted experts, though. So there is that. One thing the website did not address uh, which that I saw at least, and it is the question I think a lot of ministers though it's it's pretty much the number one question that ministers right now I think are focused on is do we at some point um, 
reject whatever stipulations are coming down on us. For instance, like I, I was uh, hearing on a podcast today in the state of Washington, uh, specifically churches were, um, were, were singled out as places that could not assemble uh, because of the spread of this virus. And, and the question then becomes, um, is the church, and this is a question I really want everyone to think through, is the church an essential uh, element of, of the culture, of society, of, of uh, is like grocery stores, think about it. Grocery stores are still open, right? Um, restaurants in many places have closed um, or have to close by government order uh, where there's a curfew, but, but people still need stuff. So you can't just close down grocery stores. Is a church and, and meeting together and worshiping or having, having the, the house of God open, is that more or less important than having a grocery store open? This is a question that you need to ask. And, and I think the answer is going to show you how much of a modernist, modernist in the sense of being affected by modernity and the, um, the secularization that has come with it, uh, you are. Or, are you, or do you see this church as actually central, as actually um, essential? Because if you see the church as essential, then you will see uh, an institution that answers to heaven, uh, to which the government uh, does not actually have control or, or cannot exert itself. And, and we've, this has been kind of a feature of Western civilization for a long time. This is why Stonewall Jackson could teach um, slaves to read uh, inside a church against the law in Virginia at the time, but he could do it because he did it in a Sunday school. He did it at church and the state did not have authority there. Um, this is why even in some Eastern Bloc countries, um, you know, the, the populations there would have, it would have just been gone really poorly for the Soviets if they would have uh, chased certain political prisoners in churches. Uh, I think Romania is the one I'm thinking of. I think it was Romania where this happened in the late 80s. There was a, uh, someone had, it was a pastor who I guess uh, had, had found refuge in a church. And, um, but anyway, uh, this, this was just kind of part of the fabric of Western civilization. Um, even in places like China, uh, Mao had to destroy the churches. Um, Church, church, church has always represented the house of God, and of course, you know, in Exodus, you see that governments can can pursue a murderer even up to the altar. I mean, they have a specific narrow role. There's a role that government has, a role the church has, a role the family has. Um, but is it infringing on the church when the government says you cannot meet, or, or uh, these restrictions make it impossible for you to meet, and we're going to enforce them by the threat of the gun, really by uh, the force. And, um, it's interesting, actually nine marks and I don't usually, you know, nine, here's the thing about nine marks, nine, nine marks has some really good things on church polity, church, church government. Um, they're going in a social justice direction fast on other things. Uh, Thibidi Anabwile, of course, nine marks guy, uh, Mark Dever has said a few things. Um, he even, uh, has, I, I'm not going to go through the whole list. <laughs> There's a bunch of things I could talk about in regards to nine marks, but, they put out this really good blog, I thought, really informative blog on their website about the Spanish flu and how the church is in Washington, D.C. And you know, long story short, um, there was a ban uh, by the local government. And it started out, though, um, with basically a request. We, we're requesting that churches 
not me. And then it became a demand. And, um, and then though it was actually becoming a showdown. It went on for so long that, um, and, and you have some interesting quotes here. I'm gonna just read for you. Reverend Randolph uh, McKim, uh, pastor in DC area, um, he argued in strong terms that nothing has so contributed to the state of panic which has gripped this community as the fact that the normal religious life of our city has been disorganized. Um, he further uh, protested that when the Federation of Pastors met with the city commissioners to consider the matter, the commissioners reasoned purely on materialistic grounds. No weight or consideration was given to the power of prayer or the comfort against anxiety that the church gatherings would provide. In the author's words, the prayer had um, that prayer had any efficiency in the physical world was an idea that was given no hospitality by the commissioners. Uh, another Baptist pastor, uh, Milton Waldron, uh, J. Milton Waldron um, in a, said that um, uh, interfering with the freedom uh, of religious worship was what the city officials were doing. And again, these are city officials. This isn't federal or state, this is city officials. Um, I guess in, in DC, you just have the city, you don't have a state necessarily. But um, said that uh, his people feel that the authorities are woefully lacking in reverence to God and wanting an incorrect knowledge of the character and mission of the church when they place it in the same class with pool rooms, dance halls, moving picture places, and theaters. And he said that the Christian church is not a luxury, but a necessity to the life and per uh, perpetuity of any nation. And so uh, I would encourage you maybe go check that out because um, you know those are some wise words, some words we need to be thinking about. You know, it, the church really should be, that, that is a, a sacred space, is the place of God uh, that represents eternal things. And um, can the government uh, force? Well, I know, I know there's some pastors out there, not many, who are, you know, ready to fight. Uh, there's other pastors I know who have kind of said, we're going to try to do what we can because we, we do want, we do care about social distancing. We, we don't want our people to get the virus. Um, but they have, there's a line though that they, they say this line may not be crossed. We, we will, we're not going to indefinitely do it this way. Um, and then there are other pastors who are just, you know, internet's fine. Oh, that's, that's not church. Yeah, it's good that you can get some things through the internet, but that's not, that's not the, uh, the idea behind church coming together, using your gifts. And so, um, so anyway, I just want to th get your, your head thinking in that, uh, respect. Where, where, where are those lines? And um, what does it say that you have this, the trusted evangelicals putting out this kind of uh, response? And, and it's not, that's not the question that they're even addressing. They're really a lot more concerned about the fact that you got to make sure your church isn't racist against Chinese people. This is ridiculous. Um, all right. Last but not least, uh, this is a mega episode at this point, but we're going to talk to Dr. Bob and uh, hope you enjoy it. Dr. Bob, you've been with us before, and it is my pleasure to welcome you back to the Conversations That Matter podcast. Last time, you were talking about uh, some social justice stuff that was happening at Duke University, and uh, now um, you are, you're becoming, very quickly, our, our guest expert on um, all things medical, but now you're going to be talking a little bit about what everyone's talking about, which is the coronavirus. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me back, John. Uh, it's certainly good to, uh, to talk with you again. I'm not sure I would claim medical expert on everything. Uh, I'm still only in my training, but I can at least give you what I know. And I would say to all the viewers out there, if you want uh, direct medical advice, please speak to your personal uh, provider. 
Yeah, well, Dr. Bob, you do have uh, some unique abilities uh, in this area on a, on a few fronts, which is one of the reasons I wanted to interview you. Um, and I know uh, partially because you do work for uh, Duke and um, you are a fan in some respects, at least from what you've told me of this podcast. We're keeping you anonymous for now. But uh, you know, this is for those who uh, listen to the podcast and enjoy it and want to hear my take and I want to hear your take. So so we're going to talk about this coronavirus deal. Um, tell everyone a little bit about yourself, though, um, as far as uh, what kind of work you do without giving too much away uh, for identity purposes. Yeah, well, that's the problem is because I'm so unique. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep myself uh, under wraps. But my background um, is that uh, I did my undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering at a top five U.S. engineering school uh, in my home state. Um, uh, after that, I proceeded to go to uh, medical school and also picked up uh, concurrently with my medical degree a master's of science in public health um, with a concentration in biostatistics and bioinformatics, um, which sort of plays off of my engineering background. And so I really have two passions. Uh, I have a love for medicine, um, but also a love for data science. Um, both passions going all the way back to uh, early childhood. Um, and I started programming for the first time my uh, freshman year of college, uh, which is kind of funny because I actually hated my first programming class, uh, but now that's actually something I can potentially see myself doing in addition to doing the whole medical thing. Mm. Um, so some of the research that I do, um, I have field-specific research, but also more translational research that I do here. It involves uh, artificial intelligence uh, research, whether that's uh, image analysis or natural language processing, um, you know, looking at uh, images of uh, 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 images of, uh, of specimens, um, or uh, going through medical research reports. So I'm still sort of in the infancy of doing a lot of the back end work. Um, I have a pretty extensive background uh, in the Python and R programming languages, to be specific. Um, okay, that's that's a lot. I think <laughs> I think it's probably yeah. But, uh, yeah. You're very smart, and um, we we all understand that now, uh, for sure. I, I definitely don't know what half of those things are that you just mentioned. So um, I know you have uh, some experience in uh, disease control. I know you were telling me. Um, <laughs> And, well, at least uh, I studied it. I have a master's degree in public health, which I guess means something. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would think so, uh, combined with all your other um, abilities and skills here. And I know you were telling me before we started recording, you're actually going to be taking part in doing some research um, that is related <laughs> to uh, the current uh, crisis that is uh, sweeping our country and our world. So, um, I, and, and I'm not expecting you to get into all of that, but... Uh, but just wanted the people to kind of be aware of who you are, um, what you do. And uh, I know your microphone was popping a little. I don't know if um, it's too close to your, to your mouth. Just wanted to make you aware of that real quick before we okay. get into the, the meat here. Um, so, so here's the, the first question. I think um, I am not unique in this. Uh, I wasn't even going to put out an episode this week, but, um, but this thing has gotten so much bigger than I ever thought even a week ago it would become. And, um, and, and there's so many different facets to it. You have uh, obviously um, 
the biological uh, element, you have uh, a political element. Um, there's even now there's a religious element. And so I was hoping to start off with um, the biological element, since that's your area. Uh, what is this virus? Um, and uh, can you explain specifically um, kind of like how it invades the body, how it spreads, uh, the mechanics behind it? Yeah, so the first thing for your users who don't really have much of a biological background, uh, the first thing to note is that this is a virus uh, that is the, uh, the pathogen or the disease-causing agent. Um, viruses are small infectious agents that have genetic information, so DNA or RNA, um, which that's actually a very technical term, um, uh, that they can replicate inside uh, living cells, but they lack the basic structure and function of living cells. Therefore, for the longest time, they haven't really been considered uh, to be living organisms uh, per se, because they lack uh, the key components that actually make a cell a cell. And scientists, biologists have typically considered cells to be the basic unit of life, um, which makes it difficult when learning to treat these things because all of our antibacterials or antifungals um, that target, you know, bacterial or fungal pathogens, those attack components of the cell. And so those components are lacking in viruses, which make viruses a unique challenge from both a clinical and a public health perspective. So this particular virus is the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. Um, for some of your more politically or historically savvy um, listeners, uh, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus uh, was actually um, first seen in 2002 and 2003 in China in the quote-unquote SARS outbreak. And so this virus um, is the same coronavirus, but it's a different strain. Um, so it's not uh, genetically related per se um, to the original 2002-2003 virus, but it is um, that same form of coronavirus, uh, so to speak. So there's an obvious question at this point. Uh, SARS was not what we, <laughs> we didn't have the reactions, we didn't have um, the amount of uh, cases and uh, the severity. What, what makes this different? Is it that it's more contagious? Is it contagious uh, in earlier stages when it's not noticeable? And so people aren't um, naturally um, keeping their distance. What's going on? Uh, it's still hard to say exactly why this is so much uh, more severe than the original SARS outbreak. Um, we're still sort of in our infancy and learning uh, all of the epidemiology behind this thing. Um, I think part of it um, definitely has to do with a slow reaction on the part of governments, both locally where the virus uh, originated from, as well as internationally once the virus began to spread abroad. Um, this virus is also, like I said, a little bit different from that original SARS virus. Um, so it could have um, properties that make it more virulent. Um, compared to the one that we saw back in the early 2000s. So how does something like this pandemic, how does it get started and how does it spread? Yeah, so um, what is sort of to define some terms like what is a pandemic? Um, 
there's three related terms within uh, the epidemiology world uh, that sort of describe ways in which diseases present themselves within the community. Uh, the first of those would be something uh, that we would call endemic. So this is uh, a disease like tuberculosis um, in, say, you know, certain uh, developing countries where the vi or tuberculosis bacteria in that case um, is just naturally, uh, has come to a natural equilibrium within the habitat. So there's a certain number of people in that particular geographic area who would just be carrying the tuberculosis uh, bacterium. When it goes beyond the normal baseline level, that is what we would call an epidemic. Um, but an epidemic would still be sort of confined to the same general geographic area. Pandemic is when now you have an epidemic that starts crossing borders. Um, okay. And not just national borders, but continental borders. Um, and so the term global pandemic would be a pandemic that has crossed continents, that has crossed hemispheres, and is affecting the entire globe, or at least a significant portion of it. Now, it, here's the question I have, and this is kind of a broad question, so you can take this in many different directions, but um, with your expertise, what concerns you the most about the situation from a medical uh, standpoint? Because we, we know that people are, um, some people are getting very emotional about this, very fearful. Um, kind of tell us, give us a barometer. Tell us kind of like how concerned you are about this. Um, you probably are more aware of the, the current numbers coming in from different places and um, the effect that this could have on the uh, medical infrastructure of the United States. Yeah, so one of the big challenges right now is that we don't have any point of care testing. So there's not like a test, say like, you know, somebody who would get like diabetes point of care, you know, you have like a little monitor that you can take some blood and then that blood will give an analyzed reading and then we'll tell you sort of what your blood sugar level is. Or um, we have uh, point of care testing for things like, you know, streptococcus pneumonia or mm -hmm. other pathogens that are out there. We don't have that right now. All we have are sort of the big, you know, behind the scenes laboratory testing kits um, that uh, are not necessarily easily usable by somebody who's not an expert. Okay, so um, the, the measure, the measure for us though, the um, measures that are taking place right now in local governments, state governments, um, uh, even what people are choosing to do themselves against what we know about this virus, um, yeah. if possible. Because here's what I'm hearing. Um, sure. I, I think it, I know where you're going. Yeah, it, it's, it's not really something that will kill you if you're young and in good health. It's something that the median age is about 80 years old. And of course, the numbers keep changing as far as um, what, what comes in from Italy, which I know is a culture where it's aging and everyone's kissing each other. <laughs> and, and then uh, the, the numbers that we have from China and then the numbers are being currently updated, but there's a kind of a lag in, in what we, uh, the numbers available to us here in the United States. But uh, I realize we have limited information, but with what we do know, which is what I'm interested in, um, why, why are the reactions um, the way they are? The social distancing, uh, canceling sure. businesses and churches. Um, is this 
something from a medical standpoint that is procedural or advisable? Or does this seem to you to be something that is overkill and, you know, do what England did initially and what the governor of California, I think, was doing initially, which is just, you know, nursing homes and places where people are susceptible, you know, kind of shut those down, but don't, um, don't crash your economy and your tax base, which you need to fight this. That's, yeah. that's, that's the root of it for me. <laughs> yeah. So one of the, the things about this disease, so when they caught the original SARS uh, back in 2002, 2003, um, it was characterized by fever, um, you know, cough, shortness of breath, some of the same signs that we see in this particular virus. Um, but what was really concerning about it was how it spread, um, is that it spread through respiratory droplets, um, and which allows for um, very easy person-to-person -person contact. Basically, what I'm saying is if somebody coughs or is even just, you know, breathing in close proximity, there's a risk for transmission of the disease. That's in contrast to something like the HIV virus, um, which takes, you know, the exchange of bodily fluids. Um, it's not something that spreads uh, through the air. Um, and so that's what makes uh, this virus so dangerous, you know, very similar to the influenza virus, um, sort of broadly speaking, and that this is something that is transmitted person to person without necessarily having physical contact or the exchange of bodily fluids. Don't we go through that every flu season, though, on some level? I mean, that's... Yeah, um, the... There is, uh, you know, the, the flu does have a much higher morbidity and mortality. Um, so morbidity being the effect that it has on patients, you know, people getting sick, and then right. mortality, people actually dying, um, than most of the general public would be aware of. But I've seen numbers on this virus anywhere from four to 80 uh, times uh, more, uh, you know, a higher risk of death than the influenza virus. So, so, so you, something that spreads with the same ease as the influenza virus, but that has a higher mortality. And that comes down to the mechanism of action of how this virus actually works in the body. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason it's called the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus. Um, that's because uh, one of the complications that it can lead to is acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, which is a pretty uh, bad outcome. There's three, um, essentially pathways this disease can take. You can have essentially a common cold, uh, you know, type of pathway where all you have is upper respiratory sort of nasal pharyngeal symptoms, you know, runny nose, that kind of stuff, what we classically call rhinitis. Or it can go uh, down into the lower respiratory tract and cause uh, pneumonia-like picture. Or in this case, uh, it uh, can cause what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a more uh, severe outcome of lower respiratory tract infection. This uh, essentially leads to rapid loss of oxygen in the person uh, who is infected, as well as uh, edema or filling of the lungs with fluid. Um, and this is caused by injury to the alveoli, which are the uh, units of gas exchange in the lungs. Um, and uh, there's some thought that um, there's a lot of speculation as to why that is, but it seems that the immune system ramps up um, and uh, you have damage to your alveoli from both your own immune cells as well as 
what the virus is doing to your alveoli. Okay, so this, this is a dangerous virus. Um, mm-hmm. e- even if you're young, something you don't want to get, even, even if it looks, I mean, what, everything I've heard is that more than likely you're living through this, like 99% or more, you're, you're living through this if you're not um, predisposed to kind of a condition that would affect your lungs or your elderly. Um, from what you're saying, though, this, I mean, it, it's going to be nasty, <laughs> even if you live. Um, and, we, and we don't know at this point, right, if it can come back or, or what kind of long-term effects. Is that right? Yeah. Um, there's some preliminary uh, reports that are out there um, that uh, people can still shed the viruses uh, week after they have, weeks after they've recovered, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're infectious. But we're not necessarily sure sort of what that post-recovery infectious window is at this point. I think there is preliminary data that's coming out there, but we don't have a full picture just yet because this virus is so new. Yeah. We first discovered this thing back, I think they said the first documented case was like the 17th of November or so, only about four months ago, which you put that in sort of you know a long chronic time span. It's not... <laughs> That is yesterday. Right. Uh, and, and it's interesting that in Italy, um, in Milan, where the, where the fashion industry is, and there's a lot of Chinese who work there, that's where it, it started there. Um, and, and you have this exchange. I mean, uh, people were flying to Europe, from Europe to the United States, from China to the United States before um, you know, the border uh, the, or the airline traffic was closed uh, to them. And um, this virus, I mean, it, I'm just putting two and two together here. This virus has been in the United States most likely for much longer than we probably realize, much longer than we were actually testing for it. And so I'm wondering how many of us thought we got a bad flu. I know I got a flu in December and maybe we actually got this virus. Is that possible that people who um, did not know they had coronavirus have maybe already had it or are carriers for it? Um, I've heard that's another thing yeah. I've heard that you can be a carrier without. Uh, having the symptoms, so forth and so on? Yeah, well, it goes back to it. As I mentioned before, you have those three sort of main pathways of disease here, and you could just have the sniffles or a runny nose or even, you know, a pneumonia-type illness or a pneumonia-like illness that you could have thought was the flu that could have been coronavirus. We're just not sure at this point how many people who had those symptoms or who were basically asymptomatic um, actually had this virus. I think we know that it's been in the U.S. probably at least since January, um, but there's still, uh, you know, right. not a lot out there as far as when exactly it arrived in the United States. So let me ask you this question, before we get into the politics, so I do, I know you're conservative, um, you are a Christian, uh, we, we agree on, I mean, I don't know where we disagree as far as I know at this point, but uh, we'd probably have to talk a lot about very specific subjects to find something we disagree on. So I want to get into that. But first, um, just from a medical standpoint, give some advice to, to my listeners as far as um, uh, what to do to prevent this. Um, obviously, we know the, the things we're being told, like wash your hands, social distancing. Um, yeah. I, you know, there's been um, a number of things online, though, going around for cures and um, you know, potential cures that, you know, I, I'd like to just get your thoughts on this. Is there um, an inoculation coming out? Is, are there things that people uh, could be eating or drinking that are better than others? Tell, tell me what your thoughts are. 
Well, there is work that's being done on vaccinations at this point. Um, that's probably one of the failings of the public health system uh, in response to the last two uh, coronavirus outbreaks, both the 2003 SARS as well as the 2009 uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, Syndrome virus um, that uh, we probably should have been working on at least a general coronavirus vaccine that could have provided at least some coverage. Um, just as we do with the flu every year, you're not going to get 100 one-to-one matchup with the flu strain uh, each year with the virus that you develop or the vaccine that you develop. Um, but uh, as far as what people can be doing, um, I think definitely cutting down your unnecessary travel in public. Um, yes, making sure you wash your hands. Uh, some things that are probably not smart to do um, is uh, all of the panic buying that you see going on. Um, and uh, also, when it comes to the respiratory masks, this is something I think that needs to be said, um, is that we only have a limited supply, and this gets back into some political and economic issues of, you know, just-in-time supply and those sorts of things, where right. um, I was reading we only have like 30 to 50 million um, uh, N95 respirator mask and we only have a certain number of uh, you know respirator machines in hospital ICUs um, and that when people are out buying you know surgical masks which actually do not protect them at all um, there's no demonstrated efficacy of using a surgical mask um, and preventing the spread. And for the masks that uh, actually do prevent, something called the N95, those are uh, masks that you actually, if you're a healthcare worker, you get fitted for to make sure that, you're, and trained on to make sure you're using it properly. So um, it actually doesn't do you much good if you're going out there and buying a mask that could be saved and reserved for a frontline healthcare worker who is actually um, involved in treating patients. Sure. Um, and uh, using that mask improperly. Um, so, yeah, and, I, I mean, and I've read some things even in uh, Georgia, I think it was outside of Atlanta, um, hospital was talking about how they've already um, are having a shortage um, of uh, certain things like hospital gowns and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I think it's in preparation for this and, and what they're already experiencing. I mean, they're over, I think it was 150 people or so for something like that are already being tested. And so this is kind of, um, for some areas, uh, a strain that they weren't expecting. Are you concerned that the medical infrastructure in certain parts of this country um, could be strained? Well, that's one of the things you may have heard in the media, the so-called flattening of the curve. That's right. And that refers to the epidemic curve, which essentially... Uh, has to do with the incubation period and how many people get sick at a certain time. Um, and the idea of flattening the curve is sort of uh, with the social distancing, with the precautions such as, you know, cleaning surfaces, um, avoiding unnecessary travel, that we may have the same number of people who get sick, but if we can spread out when they get sick, you're not going to have a spike in sick right. people. Um, which is one of the reasons I would tell the young people out there to take this very seriously as well. 
um, is that, yes, even if you get this virus and you're not going to die, if you come down with a pneumonia and you end up in the hospital um, because, you know, you were not taking proper precautions and there are enough people like you who made the same decision, that is going to put a tremendous burden on the healthcare system. And it's not just patients who are, you know, also dealing with this who are in more susceptible groups, but also patients who are already in the hospital for other medical conditions, whether they're on dialysis or whether they're awaiting a transplant, um, heart surgery, um, many of the other medical necessary procedures um, that different patients need. Um, if the hospitals are overburdened with taking care of people who are falling ill to this coronavirus, um, then that's going to put a strain on people who don't have it, um, who are there for other reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I would say it is very important for people to take um, the precautions that uh, their local public health organizations, as well as uh, the CDC and uh, other federal entities are recommending people do. Um, political angle now. <laughs> uh, I go, uh, Don't get me in trouble, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to, I'll try to, um, I'll, I'll try to have my own little commentary and, uh, you know, say some of the more outrageous things, uh, outrageous, of course, to, uh, more leftist, uh, your, your, your words, not mine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I won't, I won't make you say something that, uh, you, you don't want to say, and you can certainly pass on a question, but, um, sure. so, so we go outside, um, you know, I, I live in Virginia, it's a smaller town and, um, people aren't dying in the streets. Um, we, you know, for the most part, things look the same way that they, they looked except for the fact that, um, the, the stores are more crowded the toilet paper's gone, um, which is an ironic thing to me because it's like, you know, all these things are being shut down, but everyone's still going to the store. So they're still around each other in that context. But, um, but I, I digress. Um, and th there's my knee jerk reaction is like, why in the world are we going through all this, you know, trouble of, you know, 10 people now can't be in the same proximity, uh, with each other. And, um, and the question that arrived in my mind uh, a couple of days ago was like, why don't we just treat this like we do any other flu? And um, if you are susceptible to uh, these kinds of things, uh, you know the risks. Don't go out. Um, you know, lock down the nursing homes, that kind of thing. But um, but don't shoot your entire economy so that you don't have the tax base to. Um, fight this kind of thing. And, and that's, I guess, my concern is that it, it is the cure worse than the disease. Um, and so I'm spitballing at this point, uh, but I've already, you know, um, talked to, by the, by the time we're recording this, I've already had a little mini commentary uh, about this before we even got started. So, um, so my audience knows how I feel about it. I want to hear your thoughts though, because you know more than me um, about the medical procedures and the threat of this virus. And I just, I know you're a conservative guy. Um, do you see a threat to civil liberties um, or maybe a precedent being set for the erosion of those liberties in the future? What, what, give me your thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> obviously, it's, 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 I can sort of answer that in general um, without getting into too many of the details because I don't want to speak more than I know. Um, 
obviously it's a very difficult balance that has to be maintained between defending and protecting the public health um, at large, as well as, you know, individual practitioners trying to protect their patients with uh, the issues of civil liberties. Um, I think what needs to be looked at um, more long-term is um, not necessarily how we react when things like these hit our shores, but how do we react prior to something like this hitting again? Um, I think we really need to consider, um, you know, how our agencies respond. Um, there was a story that was post published, I think it was the New York Times or Washington Post um, talking about, it is the Washington Post, I gave you the link, um, that talked about how you know, the World Health Organization had already um, created uh, testing kits that uh, were working in the field that were being used in other countries such as South Korea, yet the CDC, uh, basically because of red tape and things of that nature, and I don't want to bash people in the CDC, I'm sure they're doing a good job, and um, there's obviously been some adjustments since then, um, mm -hmm. but uh, they, there was not allowing uh, that test to be used. They were trying to develop their own test, which from my understanding, based on the Washington Post article, um, not only did their test not work, it, uh, it failed uh, to have the same level of uh, efficacy as the World Health Organization test. Mm. Um, but uh, it actually prevented private companies and local and state public health organizations from developing their own testing procedures and validating those procedures and getting these tests to the market sooner. Um, and so I think there is definitely an issue of government regulation and government red tape that uh, caused us to drag our feet a little bit on this. Um, I also think that uh, as soon as this uh, virus had gone uh, from more of an endemic level to an epidemic level uh, in uh, Wuhan and in the Hubei province of China, that we should have been probably reevaluating at our point. I don't know what the specific answer would have been, but reevaluating travel from those regions earlier than we did. And uh, so now we're essentially living with the fruits um, of what that is doing. Um, the, the information, if I'm correct in this, was not available um, at the time. Uh, I mean, we didn't have the numbers that were coming out of Italy, coming out of Wuhan. And so it didn't seem like the threat that it is now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken on that. Well, I have colleagues from, uh, uh, from China and I have a great working relationship with them, but, uh, there is, uh, I think, uh, you can say I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there needs to be, I think looking into, um, you know, their government needs to do some self-reflection on their mm. end as far as how they handled it locally. Um, it seems like it, probably spun out of control sooner, um, you know, than they were anticipating. And uh, gotcha. it's something that uh, they as a nation need to look into as well. You know, it's not just, you know, we obviously need to do what we can here in the United States, but uh, we should encourage other countries to adopt, you know, standards of public health and dissemination of information that, uh, you know, we have here in the United States, even if we do have an imperfect system ourselves. Now, a question uh, for you. Th this is in the public now. Um, I mean, we're going to be dealing with this for a long time to come. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think uh, we're at least weeks um, 
potentially months, um, possibly up to a year or more. And, and so in order to flatten the curve, I guess a concern I have is do we indefinitely then shut down churches and businesses uh, and social gatherings? Um, I mean, wh wh is there a line which you think you, you would look at that and say, okay, that's too far. You know, <laughs> we can't because, because if it's out there, everyone's going to get it eventually. The only reason that we're doing all these things at this point is to learn more about the virus and also to flatten the curve, as you said. Um, but yeah. it, you know, it is, I mean, are we going to be dealing with this perhaps, you know, in two years, uh, you know, that flu season, will it, 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 you know, if you haven't gotten it yet, will it be coming back around? I guess that's my question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, okay. yeah, I think we, this is not the last epidemic we're going to see. I think one thing that, uh, makes it so challenging is I don't think any of us have seen this in our lifetimes, nor have our parents or maybe even our grandparents seen anything like this. You probably have to go all the way back to the late 1940s and the polio outbreak at that time, or maybe even all the way back to the, uh, the Spanish flu that we saw in 1919, 1920, um, mm -hmm. to have something of this magnitude. Um, our public, and this is a testament, I think, to our healthcare system and to our public health system, uh, just how well they have worked for so long. Um, but uh, as the world becomes more globalized, um, we're going to have to make a choice um, as to how far we want that globalization to go. Um, as you globalize the economy, you're going to expose yourselves to, um, you know, the issues that arise in other nations more and more. Yes, we, we used to have, uh, you know, two oceans that protected us from the rest of the world, but with high-speed air travel and you know, students from all over the world coming to our universities and, um, you know, businesses, their commerce that is taking place. Um, that's something that, you know, is, it's going to have an impact. We've never seen anything like this in human history. And so I think as if we want to accept that reality, we have to prepare ourselves more to respond more quickly to um, things like this in the future. Now, as far as uh, sort of rounding that back to your original question, John, um, for us as Christians, and now I'm speaking as a Christian, not as a medical professional, um, it's that balancing, uh, uh, it's, it's balancing the first and second greatest commandments. Um, our first commandment is obviously to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we want to do that in light of, you know, you and I being convictional Protestants, uh, in light of, you know, the doctrine of sola scriptura. What does it mean to live out our faith in light of what the scriptures say? The scriptures command us in Hebrews, um, uh, chapter 10, verse 25, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. First Corinthians 11, um, you know, as often as we eat the bread and partake of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have um, the structures and ordinances of the preaching of the word of the, you know, baptizing of those who have made professions of faith and those who are, uh, you know, confessing that faith, partaking of the Lord's table together. Those are things that we cannot put off indefinitely. Um, but at the same time, we do need to balance that with being a good neighbor. 
and as Christians setting the example for having a right obedience unto Caesar, um, as Paul talks about in Romans 13, um, you know, understanding that the government has been ordained by God for the punishing of evildoers um, and for those who are breaking the law. And in this case, I would say that application can be extended to those who are being reckless uh, in a public health sense. Um, but uh, that is something we're going to have to ask ourselves. And, um, you know, what point that is, uh, what line in the sand, um, I would say that, uh, you know, I don't necessarily know where that is at other than to say that we know what we are commanded in Scripture. And uh, eventually we have to resume that. Um, mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we can use this time to be good neighbors and to proclaim the gospel, to, um, you know, volunteer with church relief efforts, um, you know, to obey the authorities and everything that they say um, in terms of, you know, reasonable, um, you know, evidence-based uh, public health practices. Um, but uh, I think there will come a time where, yes, we as Christians, we do have to express our faith. Um, we're not the first generation uh, of Christians down throughout the long march of church history that has dealt with epidemic disease. Um, you think back to, you know, the Black Plague or, you know, back to the early church with, you know, the Antonine Plague or the Plague of Justinian or, you know, even into the Reform period where Luther and Calvin and um, even up into the late 1800s, uh, Charles Spurgeon, um, this was a daily reality. That's why there is such intense theological debate on so many of the issues that you see, whether it's infant baptism, is because death was a more present and immediate reality for people in those times than it has been for us today. And I think in a lot of ways we've become lax because of the prosperity, because of the structures that prior generations had built um, that have kept us insulated for the most part. Um, and so I think there is going to have to be a reevaluation um, for how we as Christians, um, you know, interact with government and uh, how we interact with our fellow citizens. Mm. Well, well said. I appreciate it, Dr. Bob. Um, you, you are uh, always welcome to come on uh, on this program and uh, talk about anything going on in the medical world. And, um, you know, you're your advice both on a Christian level and uh, as a medical expert are invaluable. So um, definitely appreciate you sharing that. Uh, anything we could be uh, in prayer for you uh, as you um, are engaged. I'm trying to put this delicately uh, in responding to this uh, crisis uh, in the capacity and in, in where, where you work. Yeah, well, I've definitely heard coming out of Italy um, that uh, there's been a number of healthcare workers who've been infected, and even in China before that, um, and healthcare uh, professionals, both doctors, nurses, uh, and other allied health professionals um, who have uh, succumbed to this disease. Um, and so there are people out there every day who are putting their lives on the line. Um, and uh, being in prayer for them, uh, understanding that uh, one of the things I, I used to say back during medical school when I'd interact with people who would come from seminary, they're like, you know, what's the way I can get involved in, you know, the city or ministry? And it's like, well, 
you know, doing hospital chaplaincy work and, uh, mm. you know, that kind of work, obviously, you know, there's public health restrictions and precautions at this point, but as we begin to recover from this and some of those restrictions come off, um, as people who are more professional, you know, ministers, pastors, um, to get into the hospital setting, not just for the patients and their families, um, you know, for gospel opportunity, but for the healthcare mm. professionals, for, the people who maintain our, our hospitals, um, you know, it's a large sector of our economy and there's a That's lot right. of people who are engaged in this fight. So just be in prayer for them. Uh, I would say be in prayer for our leaders as well. Um, there's obviously a lot of tough decisions that are having to be made, uh, both within the federal government, state governments, local governments, um, and even governments overseas. Um, so I would say be in prayer for leadership as well. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of end this um, this this whole thing on a high note, uh, and and prayer is certainly um, looking to God is certainly that. Um, some other things that just came to my mind, though, is you were um, uh, so rightfully saying we should be praying for our leaders and for our medical health professionals and getting involved in whatever areas we can. Um, you know, Ecclesiastes says that it is better to be in the house of mourning because there a man considers his end. And I often think about that when I go to a funeral, but um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a funeral because there's a lot of people right now that are considering their end. And um, I, I actually put a, a post out there on Twitter. Uh, this, those who follow me on Twitter, you know, I've been posting about this kind of multiple times a day. Uh, but earlier today, I was saying how um, on, uh, it was Amazon Prime, there's this uh, pandemic movie that's trending all of a sudden, you know, it's one of the most popular movies people are watching. And there, there's just, there's a lot of worry out there. And um, this is a good time to switch from thinking about our own mortality to thinking about um, eternity, not just the fact that we're going to physically die, but the fact that life actually goes on after that. And um, I, I would hope that, you know, movies about Jesus, like, you know, the, the one Mel Gibson did a few years ago, or, you know, what religious movies that are trying to answer those ultimate questions would be the ones trending. They're not right now, but, um, but this is, this should be, um, a time when people start to reflect on their own lives. And, you know, if, if we were getting a, um, a notification from the media, our social media, um, you know, everywhere we looked, every time a car accident happened, we'd be freaking out about car accidents because we think, oh my goodness, we need to regulate the roads more. We can't have cars as close as they are. And um, all the, the things that go into a car accident, we must prevent that. And, and we'd be obsessing over it. Um, but we, right now, that's not the issue. The issue is this virus. And so people are obsessing over it. But, um, but we could easily just, uh, you know, as well die in a car accident. And in fact, we're all going to die anyway in the end. <laughs> if it's not coronavirus, it's going to be something else. And uh, so now is the time to repent of, of sin and to put our trust, um, if you're not uh, one of Christ's, to put your trust in him for your salvation, that he took the sins that you committed on himself on the cross and, um, and he paid for them. And uh, you can be in a right relationship with God if you repent and you put your trust not in your own works or your deeds or anything in you, your decision, but solely in the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, that is the message that um, 
counts for something in eternity. And uh, so anyway, I, I felt compelled to kind of end on that note, but you were going in that direction and you were doing such a good job. I just wanted to jump in there and um, yep. add to what you were saying. So thank you. Well, yeah, I, I thank you, John, for having me on. Um, you know, I sent you uh, that. Uh, That's right. Sort of a document that uh, has all the sort of official channels. Uh, it contains links to the CDC website as well as uh, all the official yes. channels. You know, I would just reiterate that. Uh, I'm just giving my one perspective. This is not medical advice that I'm giving at all. Uh, I just want to be a good citizen and get the information out there that I know. Uh, I'll make that available, to. by the way. I'm, everyone who wants to see that document you put together, not to cut you off, but yep. uh, it will be in the uh, sure. link below there. So I just want to let everyone know that. Yep. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, John, for having me on again. And uh, yeah, let's do it again, uh, hopefully under uh, better circumstances and uh, maybe uh, hopefully uh, after a quarantine and uh, all the public health restrictions have been lifted. Yeah, we, maybe we could talk about all your politically incorrect ideas that you don't say in front of the camera no. <laughs> or yes. on the recorder. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, Dr. Bob, thank you so much. God bless you and have a good night, all right? All right, you as well. Thank you. All right, bye now. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.